Well, good evening, LCM. Let's revive an old tradition by immediately stating God's thoughts rather than give you our own. That seems like a really good way to start, doesn't it? That is a good way. Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. From the onset of this message, we are asking you to take note of three things about this verse. How many? Three. That will be important in the conclusion that the Spirit is leading us towards tonight. The first one. Notice that this verse presumes that you are in a desert and a wasteland. Secondly. Notice that this verse commands that you forget the former or past things. And third, and most of all, notice that this verse elucidates our lack of perception when God is, indeed, doing a new thing in our lives. Now, if you didn't write those three things down, you might want to because they are important to the body of the message. Our message this evening will be titled, Beautiful Badlands. <laughs> The message is a compilation of the things the Lord has been revealing to the churches of the One Association, as well as a reflection on that amazing word that was given on Sunday entitled, We Are. You'll remember that pastors Nick, Wade, and Matthew started us out in the book of Ezra by identifying four steps within Ezra 3, 1 through 12. We have a slide for you. So you can see... What we pulled from Ezra 3 was that they assembled in unity. They, the altar was reestablished. The minimum requirements were met. And they celebrated tabernacles with free will offerings. Y'all remember those? Well, people being assembled is not quite the same thing as people being assembled in unity, is it? If you'd like a modern day example of the difference, all you have to do is take a commercial flight somewhere. Especially on Spirit Airlines. Yeah. I don't know what spirit it's of, but I, I, it doesn't agree with me. <laughs> Everybody is indeed together, but nobody's in unity about anything other than an absolute hatred for government overreach into every facet of That's our true. lives. What we are aiming for in this body is to be perfectly one, not just together on a commercial airliner. Now, after being moved into unity by the Spirit of God, the people reestablished the genuine altar of God. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. This means that they had gone through a season without a genuine altar. This means that they were either unable, unwilling, or unaware of the need for genuine Spirit-directed sacrifice in the time preceding this event. Yeah, and having been moved into unity and reestablishing a genuine spiritual altar... The people offered the prescribed sacrifices in the morning and the evening. It was a God-breathed habit that they were in. This is the minimum that the law required. But what you might have missed is it's also an improvement over their previous position. Yeah. It had not been happening prior to this. And lastly, they celebrated the seventh feast, which is tabernacles, which commemorates the fragile times of dwelling in tents, but experiencing progress towards the great goals of God. They did this with gratitude. Say gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude that overflowed into free will offerings of thankfulness. 
Look, in so many ways, this is an extraordinary passage. But in the midst of all of the spiritual progress that are outlined in those four steps, there is an obvious glaring problem. It existed in their day, and it exists here and now. We're going to wrestle with this problem a little bit because corporately we're going to gain the mind of Christ in this matter. Do you want the mind of Christ? Yes. The problem is illustrated in verses 12 through 13. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Now, church, we want you to follow us tonight. During a time that should be defined with pristine clarity, a time when the nation was in the center of God's will, a time of genuine biblical progress, the waters of discernment were muddy. The older priests, the Levites, and the family heads who had, been, had seen the former temple were mourning. At first glance, I can get how you might not see this as an immediately negative thing. That's because our own discernment needs to grow. And because we have exactly the same problem in this community. While there were many reasons that they might have been mourning... And we heard applications of that verse on Sunday and good ones, thoughts of the old life, sinful things, things that shouldn't be there. The truth is, is that the prophet Haggai says what the problem was and does so with absolute clarity and specificity. And we want to make sure that we get this so that we can defend ourselves against it. Church, listen to Haggai 2 verse 3. Who of you is left... Who saw the house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like to you nothing? Does it not seem like to you nothing? The very work of God on earth. The work that they're participating in. Seems to them like it's nothing. Man Haggai hits the nail on the head. The older priest and the Levites and family heads are showing disdain. For the new thing that God is doing among them. To these men who should be mature and are acting immaturely, the present work of God seemed like nothing. Nothing to speak of here. Nothing good here. Because they're comparing it to their previous experiences. They were seeing a genuine move of the Lord and did not find it impressive. This is tragic. It's tragic in their time. And it's tragic when it happens among us in this body. This problem arises when there is deception in your perception. You might call this carnal cognition. Are you following us? You can only think like this when you are naive to the idolatry that is present and was present in your previous seasons of life. Naivety to your previous condition is what causes you to stand in something that God is doing and look backwards and go, you know, I really feel like it was better back then. You were missing something about your life back then. You were just unaware of what was there because you were naive. This is the deception in the perception of how things were in the past. Psalm 36.2 describes this. Listen to Psalm 36.2. 
For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate a sin. Let's engage with this for a minute, church. In the last days of the former temple that looks, they looked so favorably on, the people were together, but they weren't unified. There was an altar, but it was contaminated, and it was not genuine. They were sacrificing, but not meeting the minimum requirements of the law, because none of it was truly genuine. They held a feast, but it was unacceptable to God, because it did not flow out of freely surrendering their lives to his will. It's so easy to forget those things, to remember with rose-colored glasses. Church, the entire book of Jeremiah testifies to what Pastor Parsons just said. In fact, he spent 40 years trying to correct it to no avail. These older priests, Levites, and family heads are weeping over the uh, good old days. Good old days. And the thing is, is they were not really as good as the older priests think that they were. These priests, Levites, and family heads are deceived in their perception because they're ignoring the idolatry that was present in those times. This is precisely because they lived in ignorance of their own idolatry during those times. Wow. How many of you look fondly upon your previous accomplishments and you judge them as superior to your present circumstances? It breeds discontentment in you. Because you're not considering that you were just unaware of how sinful your state was at the time you had those accomplishments. Now, the problem then and the problem now risks you missing the beauty of what God is presently doing among you. If you are not able to accurately assess the former days then, how will you glorify God for what he is accomplishing among you today? Haggai takes this problem on directly and by boldly declaring the truth, how things actually were in verses uh, 6 through 9. But let's read verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. I'm going to read it again for emphasis because we need to grab hold of this tonight. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Church, as we unpack this thought, let's agree that you shouldn't need your past to be validated to validate God's goodness in your life today. Your past is always a wasteland or a bad land when compared to what God is doing now in your present circumstance. This perspective makes for beautiful badlands. Woo, beautiful badlands. Beautiful badlands. Say it with me. The glory of this present house the glory of this present house will be greater will be greater than the glory of the former house than the glory of the former house you either believe that and stand on it church or you don't there is no middle ground if you don't you will always be weeping when you should be rejoicing you will always be showing disdain in your actions for the new thing god is doing in your midst but that is not who we are, church. That is not who we are, and it is certainly not what we are going to do. It's important that you don't tune us out here. It's important that you don't get distracted with the gum that you want to unfold or whatever it is that you... This is a tune-up message for our house. Come on. Things were great back in Bible school. Oh, yeah, me and my girl were sexually immoral, but those were the good old days. Woo. 
Things were great in the beginning of our marriage. We never fought because we were totally out of shalom. Those were the good old days. Things were great in the early days of our street ministry, puppet ministry. You fill in the ministry. Even though we were renegades and full of selfish ambition. This is a disease. A disease of deception in our perception. Anytime that you are more free from idolatry than you were before, oh, that is a beautiful day. Come on. Anytime that you have been appropriately disciplined as a son, that is a beautiful day. Anytime your circumstances don't seem glorious, but you are repentant, that is a beautiful day. In fact, this is really where the Sermon of the Mount focuses and teaches us. We're going to put Matthew 5, 3 through 6 on the screen. I'm just going to walk you through it so that you might hear it in a new light because our goal is to help you. You imagine, I've been in ministry just a little while. I miss the days in the garage. Of course, when I was in the garage, all I wanted to do was be right here. Now traveling all over the place, I miss the days when I slept in my own bed. Of course, when I was only sleeping in my own bed, all I wanted to do was go to other places. Matthew 5, 3, blessed. Another way to say that is happy, well-positioned are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are they poor in spirit? Because they're aware of the lack that has always been there. And they're now not deceived about their condition. Even when they remember the good old days. Verse 4. Blessed, happy, well positioned are those who mourn. Those that are mourning over their great need for God. Because they're no longer deceived about their condition. Even their condition back in those good old days. These are the kind of people that are comforted in verse 4. In verse 5, happy, well-positioned are the meek. When you think of meek, these are those who are no longer resistant to what God is presently doing. Because they've recognized their very great need for it. Those are the kind that inherit the earth. Blessed, happy, well-positioned are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Church, we want you to be filled to the fullness of God. Let me say this with confidence. I've been doing this just a little while. I've known a lot of you for a very long time. No day in your life is better than right now if you're in the will of God. Come on. Now, if you're not in the will of God, then you have every reason to feel that way and you should repent. But even that becomes the best day of your life. Yeah. We're going to circumcise away our carnal cognition. We're going to detect and reject the deception in our perception of the good old days. Happy and well positioned is the man that now knows what he needs and no longer lives in the deceitful delusion that the good old days were good just because you were ignorant of your condition during them. That... It's good stuff. Church, if you reflect on the book of Daniel and the things we taught Monday night, just a few days ago, it illustrates this point beautifully. Listen to Daniel 1, 1 through 3. Who came to the Daniel Foundation studies? Amen. Amen. You are to feel us on this point. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. Then he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, uh, put it in the treasure of the house of his God. More than just hearing what we're saying tonight, we want you to feel what we are saying. We want you to feel what the scriptures are saying. Truly engage with it. And to do that, we want to paint a picture for you. Jerusalem has just been ransacked. Families were displaced. The king is delivered into the hands of the enemy. The temple looted and depleted of its precious articles. And to add insult to injury, they carried off the temple articles to be trinkets in the temple of a foreign god. Remember this next time that you are having a badlands kind of day. Remember what they went through. And compare that if you really are having a badlands kind of day. Should they really be wishing for the good old days? When they had a temple that was full of idolatry and circumstances that were better, but their hearts were offensive to God? Is it appropriate for them to be wishing backwards to those days? Hmm. Well, how about the days when they had more outward success, but no inward triumph? Should they be wishing for the good old days then? No. Hmm. If you think that, then what was the point of Jeremiah's 40 years of ministry? What did he labor so hard for if that's what they were going to be thinking? Listen to verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Is, there really, is this really their worst position? Think about it. Is it really their worst position? Or is this something that they should be happy, be happy about because they were well positioned for what the Lord was going to do as a new thing in their life? How often is that true? Your circumstances are worse in every possible way on the outside, but God is doing something extraordinary. And when your circumstances were better in the years before, you really sucked as a Christian. But when you look back, man, those were the good old days. They weren't as good as you thought they were. I knew you. Look, we don't have time to reteach the first chapter of Daniel. And these four Hebrew youths positioning so that they could triumph. But we do want to say that their badlands, well, they turned out to be quite beautiful. I kind of like their story in the book of Daniel, don't you? In the natural mind, their position had never been worse. But they didn't sit around and long for those good old days because those days were in the past and not really as good as many said they were. They grabbed hold of the beautiful badlands with a supernatural mind knowing that their position had never been better. They identified themselves as the good figs that Jeremiah spoke of. And they became everything that God was after in the creation of Israel. True Jews, genetically, inwardly, and outwardly. Outwardly. Church, I can tell you that nothing comes to supernatural life unless there is a death first. That has to happen. John 12, 25 teaches us all that, and you know the passage. The man who loves his life while the, will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is true during every planting season in your life. It is not speaking of salvation only. Let that settle on you for a minute. 
How many planting seasons should you go through in your life? Bunches and bunches. Something has to die in you repetitively so that something supernatural can come to life. If you sit around longing for the not as good as you remember good old days, then you'll never grow in the supernatural life that God has destined for you. It's actually a way to disguise your discontentment, which are not seeds you want to grow in your life. I distinctly remember standing uh, on this stage warning this community in December of last year. It hurt me to say it. I've been reminded of it many times as if it was something maybe that was just a little too harsh, so I'm going to say it again. If you do not grow in gratitude for what God is doing among us right now, you may not be with us in one year. Well, that was almost a year ago. So this might be our last attempt to fix some stuff. I want to get these things right. Because these are the days of the beautiful badlands. And I want to tell you with confidence as your pastor, or at least an elder, or a servant, I don't know what I am anymore. <laughs> I'll tell you what we can agree on. I'm still just Eric. I've known most of you for a very long time. And no time in your life has held more potential for you than this present season does. That's not me blowing smoke at you. You know me better than that. We have never been positioned as a body for more than we are right now. And it's so important that those not-so-good, good old days don't get in your way. You might have just liked being very tall amongst some midgets. And now we're all growing in stature. And it hurts a little bit because you're having to grow a little bit. Anything that's hard could be viewed as badlands. What you want to do is view the beauty of this badland stages because God is going Amen. to bring something amazing out of it if you will die to those thoughts. Amen. That's a good word. So as we turn to Matthew 2. Are we not supposed to say midgets? Everybody kind of wince when I said midget. Midgets. When did midget become a bad word? It's Is it up there word. with not being able to correctly identify genders? Look, if you're a midget and you're offended by listening, then come talk to me and I'll have you meet with Pastor Wade. <laughs> by the way, it was a metaphor. I was talking about spiritual stature, midget. <laughs> so as we turn to Matthew 2... Remember that Paul rebuked the Corinthians with these words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36. How foolish. I'm still thinking about the midgets. <laughs> Think of them as really muscular, child-sized adults. Or adults pretending to be adults but are really inwardly like children. It could be. There are all kinds of ways you could uh, have dwarfism. <laughs> well, back, to, back to Paul. Paul said, what you sow does not come to life. Unless it dies. Church, what we've been talking about is how your past was always a wasteland or a badlands when compared to what God is doing in your present circumstance. And supernatural life is ahead of you. Nothing illustrates the beautiful badlands more clearly than what we are about to teach you. You have already heard a message in and of itself. Up to this point, this is a message in and of itself. And you should do well to review it and implement it in your life. But we want to go further 
and you are going to engage with us because this part of the message will cause you to break forth in life. Say in life. In life. No matter how much your present circumstances and the natural seem like badlands. Do you want to go further with us? Or would you rather go home and ignore everything we said because somebody said midget? Because that would make you a spiritual midget. That's right. Listen to Matthew 2.23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, when you read this, it's not unfamiliar to you. We've read this many times. But you may also not really understand what's being said here. Most of us, most of us hear the words and think, well, cool. Jesus must have been from Nazareth, so he's called a Nazarene. But let's engage with the text right now. Is Matthew simply designating Jesus by the town that he came to live in? For example, Baj lives in Houston. Therefore, we call him Baj the Houstonian. Do you think that's what's happening here? Or is there something more profound going on? So to start with, what do you make of the phrase, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets? I'm in a confrontational mood, so I'm just going to ask you. Can any one of you in here tell me even one prophet that said Jesus would reside in Nazareth? <laughs> Much less the prophets, plural. <laughs> I mean, that's an astounding thing. This is a good example of our familiarity with the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth without really understanding what is being said or why it's important. See, worse, some have tried to make an association with this. He will be called the Nazarene. And somehow or another, they think that relates to the Nazarite vow found in number six. The problems with that view are legion. And I'm not going to take the time to enumerate them except to pick on a few because I can. Nazarites don't drink or touch wine. That's a serious problem since Jesus both drank wine every day and made it as his first public miracle. So surely that's not what it means. These words, Nazarite and Nazareth, have some similarity in English, but very little similarity in Hebrew. So it's, it's an English association, but not a Hebrew one. Lastly, what would Jesus living in a town called Nazareth have to do with him being a Nazarite, which he wasn't? Absolutely nothing. This kind of erroneous uh, speculation is really just a testament to how much somebody doesn't engage with the text. These are good questions. So back to the text of Matthew 2.23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Did Jesus going to Nazareth fulfill what was said through the prophets? Think about this for a moment. When reading Isaiah 53, you may not have been able to predict the crucifixion in crazy detail just by reading the text. But after the crucifixion, it is relatively easy to see the obvious and apparent connection and fulfillment of what Isaiah predicted. Are you following us in that? Yeah. Just reading the text is one thing, but seeing it fulfilled is another. So Matthew has just said to fulfill what was said through the prophets regarding Jesus being called a Nazarene. Something about the setting of Matthew 2 is so vivid and accurate that it fulfilled the words of the prophet. And Matthew comments on it without even telling you which prophet said it or how to find it. Do you find it remarkable that he doesn't tell you which one? He just said the prophets? Yeah. To wrap your mind around this, let's start with the context of the statement in Matthew 
that drew his mind to a prophecy being fulfilled. And maybe not shocking to you, it's a badlands kind of circumstance. In Matthew 2.16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And when you're engaging with this passage, Bethlehem is the birthplace of the great King David. And it's the place that Samuel the prophet had anointed him with oil in 1 Samuel 16. Jesus was also born there, just as Micah said that he would be. And it was during the time of a census when every one of David's descendants had to return to this area to be counted that we're reading about. Can you imagine how difficult it was to have so many of the royal families of Judah and David losing their male children? Can you imagine how easy it would be to long for any other day but that day? Yeah. If there was ever a time to long for those good old days or view your situation as badlands, this has certainly got to be one of them, doesn't it? Yeah. So look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take your child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So in the backdrop of badlands, meaning circumstances that involved near total death and destruction, and everything seemed completely lost, the Lord caused one male descendant of King David to survive the enemy attack. That is the context in which Matthew says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. What is it about being in the badlands, surrounded by death and destruction, but having one small boy survive that triggered Matthew to see the fulfillment of a prophecy. To understand the beauty of what Matthew is actually saying and how his audience would have understood it, you would need to be familiar with the things that Matthew and his audience understood, namely the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The more we engage with the text in this manner, the more alive and beautiful the scripture becomes for us. In fact, if you examine the scriptures closely, you will be able to see Matthew is extrapolating from his current circumstances what Isaiah was foretelling in Isaiah 11. This is what Matthew most likely had in his mind, and Jeremiah said the same thing, and for time's sake, we'll just read Isaiah's version. This is Isaiah 11.1. 1. A shoot, in Hebrew a hoter, will come up from the stump of Jesse. That sounds bad. From his roots, a branch, a netzer, will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. 
but with righteousness. He will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. In these next few verses, 6 through 9, he goes on to describe the literal changes in the animal kingdom during a millennial reign. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root, the Shoresh of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. That's interesting because there had been a stump of Jesse before. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Because it's a cycle and it takes more than one. To reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Now, when Elder Eric read Isaiah 11, there are some important words that we need to draw your attention to, and we have a slide to help you with that. Stump, meaning the Messianic branch, will appear as a shoot from the stump of David. The terms for shoot which is hoter, branch, netzer, and root, sheresh, are all messianic terminology. So the terms shoot, root, and branch in Hebrew are like stick, twig, and branch in English. They are different, but they all describe the same concept. It's like saying a beer. A brewski. Or a cold one. That's because they're all synonyms describing the same thing. The most popular of the term, though, is netzer. Say it with us, Netzer. Netzer. And the town of Nazareth was named for its messianic hope of a Netzer that would come to bring peace to the whole world. But the question still remains. What is it about the circumstances in Matthew 2 that so vividly drew Matthew's attention to the fulfillment of a prophecy? Remember, Jesus is a descendant of David, and all the other descendants have just been slaughtered in Matthew 2. At the slaughter of the innocents, can we call that Badlands? That's Badlands. And yet, look at what this commentator says to help you put it together. This is Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and with a name like that, you have to be smart. strong. The picture given is of a tree, which has been cut down, leaving only a dead stump. A single shoot remains growing low, near to the ground, eventually bearing fruit. It is interesting that this particular prophecy does not use the name of David but uses the name of David's father, Jesse. David is normally associated with kingship, royalty, and wealth. It should not be forgotten, however, that in his youth, living in the house of Jesse, David was a poor shepherd boy. During the lifetime of David, the house of Jesse was raised from poverty in Bethlehem to honor and majesty in Jerusalem. The emphasis of verse 1 is that although Messiah will be a descendant of David, He will not appear until the house of David has once again reduced to what it was in the days of Jesse. This verse concentrates on the lowly origin of Messiah at the time of his birth, rather than the majesty of his kingdom, which will be seen at his second coming. From the stump of Jesse, however, grows a shoot, low to the ground, but not without fruit. Eventually, the shoot will become a tree, In its own right, the Messiah or son of David would come at a time the family line had been reduced by death and destruction to a stump. You could say that Messiah would not come until they were in the badlands. 
And in that badland setting, something beautiful would happen. Anetzer would break forth in beauty and majesty of God's will to bring the world into Shalom right down to the animal Lord. kingdom. The town of Nazareth, Nazareth, was actually named for that hope. Jesus being called a Nazarene is not because he was from Nazareth, but rather because he performed the function of Netzer for which Nazareth was named. Being a Nazarene means that your life is the expression of God bringing something beautiful out of the badlands. And I would wish that all of you could be called Nazarenes. Amen. So the name of the town that Jesus' ministry operated out of was named in the very hope of a Netzer who would perform that function so that he could rightly be called a Nazarene. Not that he was from the locale, but he was that function. Now we want to show you a slide to help you see this word. This is the Greek form. The Greek word for Nazareth is defined as a shoot, a sprout, or a branch. And you can see that these definitions are from the Easton's Bible Dictionary and the Holman Bible Dictionary. Now let me show you a picture of what this looks like. When the Badlands actually served to illustrate something beautiful, supernatural, and birthed of God. And it's from a recent trip to Submission Ministries. So you can see this is a tree that's been pushed over. And then out of the stump is an actual branch shooting forth. Now the story behind this is that the guy spent almost six years cutting down this tree. Sectioning it off with chainsaws. They pushed it over with a bulldozer and even tried to burn it with fire. That was me. <laughs> so talk about Badlands treatment of a tree. Yeah, I did it dirty. No, it was abused. But it has never been better positioned to display the supernatural power that rests on the spirit's empowerment alone in this picture. It's never been better positioned to teach us. This is not just a one-time event at salvation. This is the nature of God. Out of something that is dead and that any mere natural person would be able to describe as badlands. Does that look like badlands? A dead stump? But life begins to burst forth and then to bear fruit in supernatural ways. So let's just ask, was this tree in a better position in the good old days? Well, it was tall. It was beautiful. But nothing supernatural was happening. Is the tree now well positioned to showcase the Netzer principle in the beauty of the Badlands? Yeah. This is definitely true of our great king's ministry recorded in the Gospels. It is true in the slaughter of the innocents where out of the Badlands of death and destruction, Jesus birthed forth in life and fruitfulness. Yeah. That was Matthew's point. It's why Matthew goes, this is to fulfill. He will be a Nazarene. Not his locale, his function. That happens when he's born. But that's not the last or the only time. It was true again in the badlands of Gethsemane. Where he bursts forth in life and fruitfulness. Determined to do the will of the Father. That too was he shall be called the Nazarene. It was true again. In the badlands of the resurrection of the tomb. Or the resurrection tomb, rather. Where he burst forth in life and fruitfulness, determined to pour out the spirit of the Nazarene 
on his church. Now, as you engage with this, can you imagine Jesus sitting in Gethsemane? Man, I just wish I was back in the good old days when all I was doing was feeding 5,000 people. That was, that was a lot more fun. And all I was doing was healing people. Can you imagine if Jesus behaved as some in here do? What would that do to the gospel story? Every time that you're in a position when you get the revelation that more is being required of you than you previously knew about, of course it feels like badlands. It's hard to grow. It's hard to grow in the recognition that you're in a not as good place as you thought you were. But what does that say about earlier times? If you're further now than you were then... Of course it feels like badlands to you. You're being pressured, pushed. Something supernatural has to happen. But that's where everything that is beautiful in this world is actually birthed. It's how we get beyond natural and into supernatural. It would be easy. You can go be a superstar in a shallow pool somewhere. Now you won't be happy. You'll, you'll be happy for a little while. The pressure's alleviated. You'll feel great for a little while. And then when your life begins to resemble what it used to resemble, you'll remember that the leeks and onions in Egypt were actually disgusting, and so was the slavery. What is happening to us is we're experiencing supernatural birth. I want you, like our Messiah, to be identified by a Nazarene-like spirit in you, where you cannot be put in a situation where life is not going to burst forth. I have never seen life burst forth from someone that was simply lamenting how bad and unfair their position was. Because that's not faith. If you will grow in the spirit of Messiah, you'll look at your present circumstances and go, well, it's hard to pay the rent. It's time for our next daring leap of faith. He provided for me in the past, and that's why I still had X, Y, and Z that was wrong that I've repented of this week. I'm in a better position. Happy and well positioned am I. I now know what I need, mighty God. Thank you. Don't hate a ministry that shows you what you need. Love it. Love it. This is your family. We got each other's spiritual. I'm on the midget thing again, Jen. We got each other's spiritual height chart on the family kitchen wall. And what I can tell you is you are growing. And it's because you're growing that it hurts a little bit. Embrace the nectarine. Come on, that is good news to know that we Not are... nectarine. Not nectarines. That's ne sun-kissed. Yeah, we, we, we want to kiss the sun, but we don't want to be a sun-kissed nectarine. That's right. Ne nectarine. So I want you to remember when you first came to the Lord. Were you not a dead stump in desperate need of resurrection life? However, when he cured the deception in your perception and free will, thankful offerings began to break forth in your life, you became the shoot that rose up and bore fruit from that lifeless situation. You've never been more well positioned today than any time before. Did you really think that that was just a one-time event though? If you're going to walk in resurrection power, it's a cyclical process and it happens time and time again. Every time that you are discouraged because you become aware of idolatry, 
aware of disorder or discontentment or you receive a correction, you have the opportunity to be a netzer and make your badlands beautiful. That's a nice ring to it, huh? Make your badlands beautiful. Make your badlands beautiful. That sounds like a song we should write. Let me cover these verb forms with you because all of you stayed up last night very concerned about Hebrew syntax and you wanted to know this. <laughs> Hebrews 11. I'm sorry, rather Isaiah 11. You see on the slide by Ogden, the Hebrew text of this verse opens and closes with a verb. That's almost like Yoda speak. That's kind of strange. <laughs> it is literally will come forth a shoot and then the body of the sentence, and then it closes with from his roots will bear fruit. That unusual kind of chiasm in this sentence is to draw your attention to a lot of things. First and second comings, they're not a singular event. And Isaiah didn't present them that way. He presented it in Isaiah 11.1 1 as a two-step process. But practically, for you to be a Netzerin and be beauty in the badlands, a new shoot must come forth. Come on. This happens when you get rid of the deception in your perception. When the new netzer comes forth, then the second thing, the second verb begins to happen. From the root, fruit is born. We're hoping to inspire a kind of third day thinking in here where you can see what God is aiming at in advance of having to see it actually have happened. The feelings of badlands, they need to give way to the beautiful thing that God is doing in your lives. There's none of you that he's not doing something beautiful in, although it would be hard to tell by your level of happiness or contentment with God. Then and only then will you bear beautiful fruit in the badlands. This is a two-stage process. You have to get this planted in you in every season of your life, and then it will bear fruit. There's a two-stage process. There are two comings of Messiah, and it's a process that repeats throughout your life. Matthew did not say that Jesus would be called a man identified by a location, Nazareth, or else he could have been from Pennsylvania. Take the load off, Manny. What he was saying is that he shall be called a Nazarene. Or another way to put it in a kind of amplified version is he will be called a life-giving power that breaks forth yeah. from death to bear fruit. Yeah. And don't you want that? Yeah. You can have it. That is the spirit that he poured out for you. And you can do it many, many times in your life, not just the moment of salvation. We can all agree that Jesus is the Nazarene, that he is that life breaking forth. But shouldn't we be identified by the same function as Nazarenes and in the same way? Shouldn't people be able to look at you and go, their house is smaller, their cars aren't running, and yet they're teeming with life in a whole new way. They're like Messiah. Aren't we in cycles of death and destruction? but empowered to be life breaking forth from death in every one of them. What is Micah 7, 8 about? Don't gloat over me, my Don't enemy, gloat. for though I have fallen, yet I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, I will rise. That is the cry of the Netzer. You don't need your circumstances to change. You need to change. 
And it starts by a fresh planting in your attitude. We're going to learn before this message is over how to make room in your heart for that. Let me share a quick story with you. We've all sang the song, Proclaim. The enemy will not gloat over me. You know where I was at that time in my life? I was fully committed to this body. But the enemy had snuck in and reminded me that my badlands were better where I came from. And I fell on my face and I remembered my pastor's voices because I was going through acts class at the time. I was engaged in every part of ministry that I could. And the words that they spoke to me got through and they saved me and said, no, you plant your feet here. You will proclaim the gospel to every nation on earth and the enemy's not going to gloat. I'm going to help you make your badlands beautiful where you currently are and you do not need to run. Could we send Peyton or could Peyton just leave and go to almost any church you can think of and be an immediate and overwhelming success? But would he have ever been the supernatural netzer that he is and is becoming if he had done that? See, the reason these thoughts are in your mind is the enemy is trying to seduce you to destroy you. Okay? I want to assure you that if you're standing in the will of God right now, you've never been in a better position. You say, you don't know there was sin in my house last week and it's devastating then what a great position you're in. You say, how could you say that? Because there was sin in your house the week before that, and you didn't know it. Well, we cannot continue to be naive. We just didn't know how sinful we were, but the Lord is bringing it to the surface. And of course, it's difficult. But we're not those who shrink back. We're making beautiful things come out of the badlands. Why? Because a natural branch grows in the best of natural circumstances. That's all it can do. That's all it can do. But a super, supernatural branch only grows in the badlands. In the beautiful badlands. It's not just that God can make a branch grow in these circumstances. It's that God only makes a branch grow in these circumstances. You should get that. We look at these situations and we go, well, God can bring life out of it. God can do anything. You're missing it. God will only bring life out of a situation that is dead. If you're doing just fine, then you will never see anything supernatural. It is only when the stump of Jesse has become the stump of Jesse that Messiah shoots will come forward. It is only when you have reached the end of your strength that God himself will lend you his. For that reason alone... We ought to be rejoicing if life is a little more difficult for you. To, well, I just didn't know it'd be this way. Well, suck it up, buttercup, and it won't be that way tomorrow. Yeah. We are Nazarene. We make beauty in the badlands. I was, you plant me in a parking lot, buddy, and watch me break the pavement with my Netzer roots. Our pastors covered this pattern in Sunday's message. And I want to go back to it. Assembled. In unity. We are assembling in unity. That's what's happening. We're getting our steps and our positionings right. Alter reestablished. We are going to do the things necessary to reestablish and consecrate the altars of our hearts in this room. You might even think we're nitpicking on you. And I am. Just be glad I'm not calling your names. 
Because I want our altars to be right together. I'm not willing to leave any behind. I believe that you're here for a reason and that we need one another and we need the Netzarene version of each other. Yeah, that's right. Third, minimum requirements were met. We will meet every requirement of the Lord in our badland situations. And that's the best place to be able to show that we're doing it for the Lord. Fourth, celebrated tabernacles with free will offerings. We will celebrate this process of tabernacling in the flesh through badlands because of the beauty that it will reveal. And more than that, we'll go above and beyond. We'll make our free will offerings to display the supernatural power of God. That is who we are. Amen. And we're encouraging one another towards it. Come on, that is who we are, church. Now, Sunday, the pastors helped us identify a connection between the taunts of the enemy being associated with foxes in Nehemiah 4.3 and birds of the air in Genesis 15. What we want to help you with is practical instruction from Luke 9 in these final moments. Do you remember that connection? The taunts of the enemies are, man, even a fox will knock down your wall. If a bird landed on it, it'd fall over. And you know how I treat those foxes and birds. You punch them in the face. Right in the face. So, church, listen to Luke 9, 58. Jesus rep replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Natural foxes and birds do have homes. But these spiritual foxes, these foxes of discontentment and the discouraging of the building process should have no home in your heart. Be a Netzarene and make the badlands beautiful and get rid of them. Now these spiritual birds of the air, the enemy's thoughts trying to steal the promises of God in your life or trying to confuse your perception of the kingdom. They should have no home in your heart and be the Netzarene that you are and drive them away. Their presence in your heart is why the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But if you get rid of weeping over the good old days, then you can start rejoicing that you are a Netzarene and the Badlands will become beautiful in your life. The old generation was crying over something that wasn't real. A feeling that it was better in the past. Well, if Jeremiah's testimony is true, it was not better in the past. It was just their recollection. And it was causing them to miss that they were a part of building something that the prophet said would surpass anything they had ever experienced. And friends, Jesus walked in the temple that they built. It did surpass it in every way. And I'm here to tell you, your life will surpass anything in your past. We just have to evict those foxes. We have to evict those birds of the air. I'd like to finish this message right where we started it. We're going to close with the scripture that we started with. Isaiah 43, 18. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. When you stand up from this altar... You should be able to truly say, we have forgotten the former and past things. It's a very practical step. Not cling to them in some weird idolatrous way that ignores all of the sin that was involved and exalts it the same way that the 
Israelites did in thinking back upon Egypt. Anytime they came to a difficult test, they thought they had it better in Egypt. That shouldn't be found among us. This altar would be a good place for you to be able to get and stand up. We have forgotten the former and past things. Verse 19. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. And then the question, do you not perceive it? God is doing new things in our lives. They are springing up all around us. You should be able to get up from this altar after evicting the foxes and birds and say, we see them and we will hold fast to them. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. You should be able to get up from this altar today and say, our badlands are now beautiful. We have become streams of living water and done it in the wasteland. We are supernatural sons of God that cannot be held back. That's what brings us all into unity. That's what will reconsecrate our altar. That's what will more than meet the minimum requirement. That is the free will offering that celebrates this time of tabernacling. And we want you to be able to have it with us. We are one body. I love you each deeply. And I'm asking that as you stand to your feet, you consider your speech within your home. You consider the attitude with which you're identified. If it's something other than Nazarene, if it's something other than bursting forth with life in this situation, well, there's room for repentance. And even if you have not been having the best days of your life, repentance is the best way to get there. I can tell you for sure, we're going to take that yellow area on the map. But we'll never do it by looking back going, you know, when there were 60 people, there was less problems. And man, those were the glory days of the ministry. I've been here since the first day of the ministry. There is no family in here that is not further along than when you got here. There is no one in this room that is not showing more potential than you ever have. But there are a few of you that are getting dominated by foxes and birds that are trying to make you look backwards to things that I know were diseased. And you used to know it. That's why you came here. It's time to deal with that so that we can stand up in the kind of unity that is one consecrated altar. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We love the family that you've given us. We love the people that make up life-changing ministries. Lord, we're asking that your, your spirit would enter us. Lord, that where there's discouragement, it would be healed. Where there is wrong thinking, it would be excised away. We need your help. We are your people. And Lord... Whatever we do, we are doing it together in obedience of your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray.